began last week in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, we'll be looking at some of the same passage as we did last week, but we'll be kind of coming at it from a, a different angle. We'll be mining uh, for, uh, for different, uh, uh, different fruit. Uh, some may wonder, uh, is this the pace we're going to keep? Um, and uh, well, next week we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, but these opening verses are so pregnant uh, that it seems like it would be a negligence to uh, to just move on too quickly, and um, I'm quite sure uh, we don't have I don't I'm not going to have the t- be given the time to just mine it all in one sitting. So uh, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four this morning. Uh, although our focus will be primarily in in verse three. Hebrews one, hear the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we come with thanksgiving that you've not left us to speculate about you, about our own struggles, about the way that this world is designed to work. But you have spoken. You've spoken through your prophets. You have spoken through your apostles. You've spoken perfectly through your Son. And you continue to speak now by your Spirit and your Word. And so I pray, Lord, you would speak to us. Not only that we would gain knowledge of, uh, of what this text says, uh, though what it teaches is, is incredibly important. Uh, but by it, we would also gain knowledge of ourselves and gain understanding of how we may relate to you because you have desired to relate to us. And so, Lord, open our hearts, our minds, that we may be shaped by this word, that we would not be merely informed, but formed. May you be glorified by the result, we pray in Christ. Amen. I was intrigued recently by an article I read. The article was titled, Why Physics Says You Can Never Actually Touch Anything. And here is the imagery that caught my imagination. When you plop down in a chair or slink into your bed, the electrons within your body are repelling the electrons that make up the chair or the bed. You are hovering above it by an unfathomably small distance. And so my mind just kind of grappled with that, and the article went on and explained, and I'll kind of touch on that in a moment. Uh, But, you know, it it, it was not only kind of awe and and profound, but also a bit humorous. I couldn't imagine, I started imagining now teaching this passage and, and recognizing none of you are actually sitting on those chairs, according to physics. You are hovering above. So if your legs are tired at the end of the service, we, we now know why. Uh, but this article went on and explained that 
the nucleus of the atom, which is the, the basic building block of, of all matter. Uh, the, but the nucleus of the atom should not actually stick together. Uh, that the positively charged protons should, according to the article stating the, the laws of physics, uh, should actually repel one another. Uh, but there's something that holds them together. Now, again, in the article it said that the scientists have a long time been baffled, and I don't know how old the article was, so maybe they have figured this out. Uh, but they were a long time baffled, and so whatever it was that was holding it together, scientists had referred to apparently as simply atomic glue. Now, many preachers would take that imagery and tell you that that something that is holding everything together is, is God. They would do so on the basis of uh, what we read here in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and a number of other passages saying it's, it's God who's holding all things together. Clearly, there's, there's a reference here for, to that. I will leave that to the uh, physicists and the theologians kind of hash out the details on how that happens, whether it's being held together by a supernatural phenomena, whether God in his providence has got something that had not previously been discovered or has been discovered or before, since the article was written. Uh, but it also, I think, is pertinent, not just because of the idea of, of just the fascinating nature of, of creation, not just in the broad sense, but in the, the minutest detail. But what the author of this article says is, is true atomically, that I'm not really qualified to tell you whether it is true or not, is true in a very practical and a very personal way. What I mean by that is that all of us have experienced at different times in our life, maybe through long seasons or uh, much of our lives, uh, but the, the pressures that we have in life and the conflicting commitments that we have that seem to be pulling us in different directions, all of us at times feel like our lives might be falling apart, like they might blow up in certain aspects of that. And yet, even when we have that feeling, there's something that always holds it together. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in this passage that that something is a someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ. Because the writer of Hebrews, and part of what his description here in this passage says, is it is through Christ that God holds all things together by the power of his word. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this to people who are experiencing difficulties in their life. They are feeling that pressure of life. He's writing to Jewish believers, likely in Rome, though it's not certain, who had endured long period of persecution, suffering, hardship. And they began to wonder, is, is it worth it? Is it worth continuing in this? Is it worth suffering for uh, the sake of, uh, of this, this person, Jesus? Is it worth it to uh, embrace this man who came as a prophet uh, and who fulfilled many of the prophecies, who died and then rose again, is it worth it to experience the hardships of life? Or should we just simply kind of go with the flow of what the culture is telling us to do? People might let up on us and, and we can go on. Well, the writer of Hebrews is writing to the people in that circumstance, but to people in any circumstance where there is pressure in life. And he's telling us not only stay the course, as we have, have uh, talked about, uh, the title of this, this series, uh, but one of the primary ways that he's telling us that we are to stay the course is to consider Jesus. In fact, that's a phrase that he uses twice 
specifically in throughout this letter, uh, but the concept is there at every page and every time, everything that we're going to look at. Essentially, the writer of Hebrews is saying, consider Jesus, because as we consider Jesus, we see what God is doing. We see and are reminded of what God has promised, and we have uh, what we need to be able to continue on, to stay on course, to, to persevere. And as he writes this letter, in the very beginning, he just kind of plunges right in uh, in describing Jesus. He begins, the opening words are, you know, about God and how God has spoken, but, you know, he moves right away, and as we looked at last week in saying, and God has spoken, and God is still speaking in his Son and through his Son. He is the perfect expression of God. And then as we look at the other verses here, particularly verse 3, moving at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, uh, we see seven different expressions, seven different characteristics, not exhaustive about Jesus, but seven characteristics kind of presented as, as a bouquet of, of characteristics that give us an understanding of who Jesus is and then representative, point out the way that he is represented. And there's a purpose for which the writer is presenting Christ in these ways. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to touch on each of the things, the descriptions that we have in here, and then move on and, and see why the writer is writing this, why he believes that it's important for us to consider Jesus, and to see Jesus for who he is, and as he has been revealed. And so as we look at the passage, we, we see the first thing that, uh, uh, that we pick up on is the description of Jesus after he's uh, we're told that he is the final word, is that he is the heir of all things. And, you know, that one is, is really, it's, it's kind of, it, it's a natural follow because he, he, Jesus has already been referred to as uh, the son of God. So if he's the son, it makes sense that he would be the heir of all things. But what the writer is doing is he's actually going back to Psalm 2, particularly in verse 8, where the, the psalmist writes this, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, the psalmist was reflecting what God was stating, and the psalm is, is about Jesus, and, it's, uh, and, it's, and he's saying to uh, the Messiah who would come, Jesus who has now been incarnated by the time of the writer of Hebrews, Ask me, and I will give you, you everything will be yours, the inheritance, the earth. Uh, everything, all of the nations, everything will belong to you. It is a poetic expression, acknowledging that Jesus is the king who had been promised, who reigns and who rules rightly because everything does belong to him. Now, for those of you who are Bible students, kind of an important side note, um, and I don't want to lose those who may not be familiar, but uh, you may remember that early in Jesus' ministry, he went out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan, by the enemy. And one of the temptations was that if Jesus will bow to him, that Satan would give him rule of the entire earth, the kingdom, everything would be his. And in one sense, it's an incredibly audacious statement, and it's foolish as well, because according to what God has already said in Psalm 2, Everything already rightfully belonged to Jesus. He was going to inherit everything already. And so he was only being promised something that would be his anyway. The significant difference there is that promise was that he would give it to Jesus as long as Jesus didn't go to the cross. 
The temptation for Jesus would be to take the kingship without going, the going to the cross, in which case Jesus would reign and he would lead and give us moral example, uh, but we would still be left in our sins. And so that was the whole purpose in the temptation of Christ. But when the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, he is the heir of all things, he, he's pointing out the rightful um, status that Jesus, everything belongs to Jesus. It also makes sense that he is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus because one of the next characterization, characters that, uh, uh, that we see is that he's the creator of all things. And uh, we see that in, in the rest of that passage. He's the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. A lot of people don't think about Jesus in that way. We have this idea, okay, God, and maybe just God the Father, he created things, and then he sent Jesus into the world to, to save the world. But from the very beginning in Genesis, we are told God, uh, and the, it's a plural expression of God, Elohim, uh, God created the world. He spoke all things into existence. And throughout the scriptures, we're told that all three persons of the Trinity, all three persons participated in the creation of the world. And Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, he participated in the creation that is all around us. He made everything. And even the, the word that's here in terms for, for word is, is insightful. In, in the Greek, there's two different words for word. Most commonly that you have in, in, in John is the word logos. It does mean word. But the word that's used here in Hebrews is, is rhema, which means spoken word, which gives brings us back to the whole idea of how God created everything, is that he just spoke it. There is so much power in his ability to speak. He can make, he can create, he can create from nothing simply by speaking things into being. But the writer here says that Jesus is not only the creator, but he is also the sustainer. And as we, we see that in the middle of verse 3, when it, he says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the same power that he used to create, he spoke is the way that he holds all things together, atoms and even your life. When you consider those two things together, we have a picture of Jesus, the power that he has, along with the right, to not only create, but to make that which is new. And why that matters for us is because Jesus made this promise, those who trust in me, those who belong to me, have been made new creations. And yet, very few people that I know feel significantly different after they make their profession of faith. At least not initially. We know the words that they are new creations, but the idea is just, you know, physically we haven't changed. Our situations don't immediately change. There's all sorts of things that are most immediate to us that don't change, so it makes it difficult for us to, to ponder that we are made new. But the writer of Hebrews is calling our attention to the right and to the power and the ability and how Jesus works, and it's by the word of his power. And so therefore, when he says that he has made you new, he, you have been made new. And he's able to do that with anything and anyone. Because as the scriptures teach about how God has made the world, speaking it into existence, uh, the theological Latin phrase is ex nihilo, meaning from nothing. God didn't take certain elements and then put them together like an artist. There was nothing except for God. And he made 
the matter that he put together and that he then created the world. He who was able to do that in the physical creation, to make from nothing, is able to make new anything, even if you consider your life to be nothingness. There is no limitation that he is able to speak and he is able to make. The writer of Hebrews also says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. And it's an incredible word. Some of the translations say that he's the, the reflection, which is not as helpful. It's not entirely wrong, but it's not capturing the essence of what's being said, that he is the radiance, and as the radiance of God's glory, the essence of what God is, that Jesus is both the radiator and the radiation in this. In the, the radiance, he, he's both aspects. See, if it's a reflection, it is something that is just else. It's just there's, there's God, and then it, it's reflected. We become the reflections of God's glory. But Jesus is, in this word, we're being told that he is in his very essence. He is God. There is that unity. He is part of the glory of God. And as such, when he is seen and God is seen, we are able to see God. We are able to see what makes God great. And so he's the essence and he is the expression of that. And we see the unity. Really, it's, it's a, a reference of Jesus being the second part second person of, of the Trinity. But in the exactness, even with the economy of words here, the writer of Hebrews also says, but he is the, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And here he's bringing on, uh, he's kind of reaffirming that we can know God as we know Jesus, and yet he has something else also in mind at the same time. Now, but the idea that he is the imprint, you, you can think of any a number of things most commonly, I think it's illustrated by, you know, kind of like the, the imprint on a coin, something that might have a mold or, or a stamp, something that presents the exactness. And, and so when there's something that is made out of a mold and then you put something in the mold, the statue or anything else, it comes out as an exact expression of whatever it is it's trying to depict. In this case, Jesus is being said he's the exact imprint. And so, again, when we see Jesus, we see God. But the difference between the imprint and the radiance is this, is that the, the imprint, the thing that comes out of the mold, is something distinct. The imprint is not the original. And so while Jesus is himself God, the second person of the Trinity, the writer of Hebrews is also pointing to us about this mind-blowing idea, but he is also distinct. He is the second person. He is a distinct person within the Trinity. He is God, but he's not God the Father. He is part, and yet he is distinct. It's a concept that is difficult, if not impossible, for us to comprehend, and yet this is what the Scripture speaks of Jesus. Uh, the complexity, and yet the immediacy of the person of Jesus but at the same time, he is both God and distinct. And so we hold those two things in tension, but in both cases, in Christ and through Christ, we are able to know what God is like. 
the writer goes on and talks about the he, when after he made purification for our sin in, in verse 3. Here he's pointing to the purpose for which Jesus has come. Now before we move into this and talk about what, what he's alluding to, I want to highlight this, is that the, the attributes that we've looked at so far all are reflections of, of the cosmic nature of Jesus. Though he was like us, he also is God. All of those characteristics that we need to recognize in him, which makes him different from us, even though he is like us, reminding us that he is God. Those are the aspects of his nature. But these next two descriptions that we have that the writer embeds in this passage talk about his priestly function. And the first one is that he made purification for our sins. And there he is kind of bringing our attention to Jesus' purpose of redemption. Jesus is making purification, which he did through giving, laying down his own life, even to the point of death, death on the cross. Three days he was dead and then rose again for our salvation. And the imagery of the purifications would bring back to mind of these early Hebrew believers uh, the work of the high priest, particularly uh, on the, uh, the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which on the calendar was celebrated, I think, on Wednesday of this past week. And every year on Yom Kippur, the, the, the priest would go in and he would offer the sacrifice. And the sacrifice, if it was offered by one who was pure and was adequate, would be received by God and the people would be forgiven of their sin they would be declared pure, not because of themselves, but because of the sacrifice that was offered in their behalf. And Jesus Christ came as the, the priest to offer that sacrifice. And the sacrifice he offered was himself. The fact that he came out of the grave was indication that God had accepted the sacrifice. And because the sacrifice had been accepted, the declaration of all who belonged to him, all who trusted, all for whom that sacrifice was offered, is that God declares us pure. We have been declared pure. And the work of the Holy Spirit is continuing on, although not referenced in this particular passage, in enabling us to become what we've already been declared, that we have been declared pure, and now the sanctification, the growth in spiritual life, is that we would become more and more pure, more and more like Christ, more of what we have been declared to be. And so the, the writer here is bringing attention to the purpose for which Christ came, which is to lay his life down as the sacrifice that not only paid for our sin and redeemed us, but purified us as we trust and believe in him. Then he moves on related to this, and he says something that is easy to overlook, and yet it is very significant. After he made purification for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is speaking of the ascension to which Jesus, where the place where Jesus is, is, is now seated and, and the work that Jesus is now doing. Now, part of that also tells us that Jesus is the ruler because he's seated down uh, and he's sitting at the right hand of, of God the Father, meaning that he is the rightful ruler. He is reigning from on high even now. And so all these things kind of hold together in the fact that he who was the heir of all things has now risen and sitting. He's, all things are rightfully his, and he's now reigning and sitting on high. 
And here's what he did. He had offered his life as the sacrifice. He who is God in nature came, offered himself as, the, as that sacrifice and then ascended and it is ruling. And that itself would be a worthwhile uh, synopsis of, of the nature and the, and the work of Christ. But this imagery of him sitting down has got to be tied to the imagery of making purification, the idea of, of, the, of the work of the priest on Yom Kippur. Because it's in tremendous contrast here that we may not immediately think about because it's so different from our culture. And it's this, is that the high priest on Yom Kippur never would sit down. The high priest never can sit down. When the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies during Yom Kippur, when he goes in for the purpose of bringing purification by offering that sacrifice, the priest goes in wearing both bells and a rope around his waist. And the reason for the bells is because since he's very busy, he's going about his business and he's chopping things up and offering the sacrifice and whatever, you know, you, you hear the bells kind of ringing as, as people are around. And, and the people that are outside, they're, they're listening for that bell. And, and the reason for the rope is that if for some reason, you know, he's kind of paused for a moment and it goes a little too long and you don't hear any bells ringing, people might wonder, is he okay? Because, see, the danger for the high priest is if he goes in unprepared, if he goes in having not prepared himself offering his own confession and purification before he goes in and offers the sacrifice, approaching God in an impure way, God says, I will not allow anything, I will not allow sin in my presence, that those who go and minister just you know, half-heartedly or unprepared, that the promise of God, the, the curse of God says that you know, I, will, I will take the life of the one who is trying to, who is, who's, who's daring to approach me. And so the priest would go in and he was not properly prepared. He was not able to offer the sacrifice. He may die. And so if the bell stopped, people started wondering, okay, did, the, did God take the priest? And so they would kind of, if the bell stopped, they would kind of tug a little bit on the rope and see if they get a tug back. If there was no tug back, then they get all the men together and they kind of have to, you know, haul the guy out and the people would know that they're still stuck in their sins. But the priest would never sit down. He would go and people would hear those bells. And even if they had to give the tug back, it was only a pause briefly, and he would go back about his business until he had finished his business or his, his duty uh, when he left and he was no longer functioning as the priest at that time. The imagery here is Jesus, who was the priest, the high priest forever. And he goes and he offers not just the sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, which the high priest is doing during Yom Kippur, but Jesus, for the purification, he goes, he offers one sacrifice, he says, I'm done, and he goes and he just kind of sits down. It shows the distinction between him and the other priests. But it also brings our attention to this question. Well, then if the priest never sits down and Jesus then goes in and he offers the one sacrifice and then he goes and sits down, what's it trying to say? Why is Jesus done? Why is he sitting down while, all the, while the priests all work? And the reason that Jesus is done is because it's finished. There's nothing more to do. There's no more sacrifice to offer. He offered his life once for all. That's all that it took. He who himself knew no sin. He is perfect. He is pure. He is God, which is why it's important to know all of these other attributes before we consider his work. Because he was holy and he was perfect and he was sufficient. And he went about the business for which he had come, which is to lay his life down as that sacrifice by which we are declared pure. He's done. As he said on the cross, it is finished. There was no more to be done. And so he sits down. Imagery of the work of the priest is done, though he continues to the work of the priest. And yet, 
reminding us that he who is the priest is also the king. And in these images, we have what the scriptures teach, the prophets of Jesus coming, or the, the, uh, the prophecy of Jesus coming is one who would come in the order of Melchizedek, who was an Old Testament priest. You meet him in Genesis. He kind of shows up out of nowhere. He's described as no one knows where his beginning is, and the reason being is Jesus has no beginning. Uh, and he receives worship from Abraham. Worship only belongs to God. He receives a tithe, which is an expression of worship to Abraham. And then he offers the sacrifice. He is the prophet, priest, and king. And he's the only other one in the scriptures. And so when they said that when the Messiah comes, he will be like Melchizedek. He will be a prophet, priest, and king. Here we see Jesus as the prophet because he is the revelation of God. He's the final word. We see that he is the priest because he came and he laid down the sacrifice of his own life. And he only needed to lay down the once for all. And he is done. And now he who is rightfully heir of all things has ascended and is reigning. At the right hand of God, he is the king. And all of those offices, as they're referred to, are evident in these few words as the picture of our Jesus Christ. But inquiring minds may kind of wonder, well, what's Jesus doing now? Because the writer of Hebrews didn't say, well, he's just he's not retired sitting. He's continuing as the priest. He's continuing as the king. And he's continuing as the prophet who's the revelation of God. And the fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father draws our attention to another passage. Because Paul in Romans 8.34 tells us what Jesus is doing now. It begins with a question, and he says, who is to condemn? In other words, who's going to condemn the people that belong to Jesus? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews is pointing to Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he, we've seen through, through this, is, and now what he's doing as both the king and the priest and the prophet is he is at work, and he's interceding for us. What does it mean that he's interceding for us? Well, intercession is one word that we have for prayer. So there's a sense in which he is making prayer to God the Father. If you want to know what kind of prayer he's offering, I would say, you know, make a note and go read John 17, because there we see Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so that is a prayer that he prays for his people. And he's very clear. He's praying for this for the people that God gave him. He's not praying this for the whole world, but very specifically for everybody who believes, everybody who the Father has given to him. And Jesus is making that intercession, and he's praying on our behalf. And part of that is that we would grow in a maturity, we would grow in the unity, that we would reflect, that we would experience the, the glory of his grace. But intercession has another aspect, too, which is vitally important for us to understand. And this is where these, you know, theological tidbits, if I haven't lost you already, uh, stay because it's important. And you'll see why this would grip the heart of the early hearers. But interceding, he's kind of pleading our case. That's the imagery that we have there. He's our advocate, as is described elsewhere, uh, with God the Father, who is the judge of all things. And there's an important picture 
that I learned years ago from uh, another pastor. I've shared it before, but it's one of those illustrations that is absolutely worth regular repetition. I know that Jesus has pleaded with the Father to forgive me, as he has for you. And I can't speak for you, but there are certain things in my life, certain sin, that even when I think it's in the rearview mirror, it shows back up, you know, I turn around and it's right there staring me in the face. There are sins that are just difficult for me to shake. I might do it for a while and then they, they, they come back and either point to mock me for just how awful those things are and so... Now, who do you think you are? And there's others that they're just there. And that may be true for you. I know I'm not alone in this, but. And I think of a, what the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, which is important for all believers to understand. He says, if you, you claim to be without sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're, you're kidding yourself. But if you're faithful to confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all, all sin. And part of that process, the imagery of seeing how behind the curtain of how things work in heaven is Jesus, who is interceding for us. He is our advocate, who is pleading our case before the Father. And it's very difficult for me to imagine Jesus pleading my case for the same offense over and over and over again. What is it that he says this time? For the 10th, the 20th, the innumerable time that he comes before, what's he supposed to say? I know, Your Honor, my client's an idiot. Have mercy. And I may very well be that idiot. That's besides the point. But the question that comes to my mind is, how long will Jesus keep this up? At what point is he going to say, you know, get yourself another lawyer? Um, you know, uh, um, you know, if you don't want to do the time, quit doing the crime. You know, that's um, that would be reasonable. If I was my attorney, that's what I would be saying. And so that's what I imagine Jesus would be inclined to say. But what John reveals to us about Christ interceding for us is very important. That There's two very key words there. If we're faithful to confess our sin, in other words, if we recognize we have sin and we do it because we know we must, we have no other recourse, it is the only hope that we have, that's doing the right thing out of right belief is faithfulness. The passage doesn't say that he's faithful to advocate on our behalf. But he who's advocating is faithful and just. And that word just is very, very important. Because it's the difference between my advocate, Jesus, who is interceding for me, standing before the judge saying, I know my client's an idiot, have mercy. And what he actually says is this, Your Honor, I've already paid the debt for his crime. Whether he's an idiot or not is irrelevant here. 
What matters is this, I've paid the debt, and therefore, if there was any punishment to be placed upon him, it would be unjust. This case must be thrown out. And that is the advocacy that Christ does for all who belong to him. And that is wonderful news for those who struggle with sin. Those who feel deep guilt because of past sin or because of the recurrence of sin or because of the temptations that are in your life that make you feel like things are going to fall apart. We have one who is seated on, seated on high, who has already made purification and who is now advocating on the basis of that purification and the justice that goes along with it. And that is the advocacy that Christ is offering. And so I read this passage and this question comes to my mind that I pose to you is, do you know this Jesus? Not the Jesus of the popular culture, not the Jesus of just the children's Sunday school songs. It's not that there's anything wrong with them, but do you know the Jesus as he's revealed, as the glorious radiance of God, who is now reigning and interceding for those who belong to him. And it is not just a matter of love and mercy, but his justice that has set you free. if you're trusting in him. And why does this matter? Well, it shapes the way we experience life. I'm not really much of a NASCAR person, but I, I spent a few years uh, living in Bristol, and so twice a year I, I watch with the race on last night, having been one of them. When I lived in Bristol, I felt very small because there were five-year-old boys who would see a car and say, hey, that's a Chevrolet, and that's the driver, and this is the engine he's got under the hood. And I say, well, I know that's a number two um, on the car. You know, kind of the discrepancy there. You know, but if you ever lived in, in one of those small towns that have NASCAR, and maybe parts of Richmond are like this too, it's, but I mean, there's a whole lot more going on in Richmond than uh, just a, a racetrack. It's a fascinating environment. And last night, the, the race was fairly close. With just a couple of laps to go, the one who had been in the lead for quite a while got bypassed, and then, you know, you could tell, and anger, frustration, everything else comes out after the race because he didn't know how the you know, he assumed he had it won. Well, imagine you were the guy that was in second place, or, you know, you're a fan of the one who was in second place for the entire race, and you just think the guy who usually wins is going to win again. And now you know your guy wins. Now, uh, if... You were passionate about NASCAR, like a lot of people are. And, and you were watching the race and just really, really hoping and really, really hoping, and then you were happy last night. But for, you know, 496 laps, you didn't really have a whole lot of, a lot of hope. If you happen to watch the replay today, you're going to experience that race in an entirely different way. Why? Because you already know what the outcome is. Now, I could use the same analogy from some of the football games that were yesterday. I mean, the Alabama-Florida game, which I really didn't care about being from Tennessee. I hoped there was a way that both teams would lose. But it came down to a two-point conversion at the end of the game. And, you know, Florida blew it, and Alabama came out and prevailed. But if you were an Alabama fan, and those last couple of minutes, because Alabama came out and started you know, way, way ahead, and here comes Florida coming back. That can, Alabama, they don't know how to lose. And so, you know, is this possible? When they watch that replay today, they're sitting a whole lot more easy than... They were uh, yesterday afternoon. And when you and I know who Jesus is, which tells us the qualifications to do what he did, he is God who came in the flesh. 
And we're reminded that what he did, he made the sacrifice that brought purification. And now he's seated on the right hand of God, ruling and continuing to intercede, not on the basis of mere mercy, but the justice that he has accomplished. When the pressures of life, when your own failures hit you, when you feel like, you know, it's just done, when you are reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done, you experience those hardships and those difficulties, those pressures in an entirely different way. And so I ask the question, do you know this Jesus? This Jesus who is in fullness? Because he makes, knowing Jesus in this way, makes all the difference in the world on how you run your race and how you will stay the course. The writer of Hebrews puts this here for us so that we are reminded and so that we would regularly remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And what he is still doing. Because it's in Jesus and through Jesus that God has chosen to reveal himself. It is Jesus who is the final word. He and nothing more. Nothing less. Nothing else. Father, we pray that these pregnant words and even all the details which we can get caught up in would bring comfort to those who are hurting, encouragement for those who are frightened, and strength for all who belong to you. We may know you in Christ and through him, and in him and by him, we may endure. And in our living, we give praise and thanks to you as we not only rest in him, but we rejoice in him as well. Be glorified, we pray, in your people who are in Christ. Amen.